The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today we are talking about top reasons for security clearance denial and revocation. We're bringing you the second part of a conversation that we recently had with Charles Phelan. He is the former acting director of the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, 30-year CIA veteran, spent a lot of time in the private sector working on security issues. So well-versed in these topics, we're deriving kind of our data from a recent white paper that we did over at Clearance Jobs, and that was about the state of the security clearance process. It is a twice-annual report that we're putting together with some of the top data sets and questions that we get about the clearance process. If you'd like a copy, you can go to about.clearancejobs.com, access your own copy. Some of the things we talk about in that white paper are reciprocity, um, transfer of trust, timelines there, how many people overall have security clearances. The number may or may not surprise you. It's good trivial pursuit data here for the winter months. 4.1 million people have security clearances today. That's actually down by a million from where it used to be. It used to be 5.1 million. They got a lot of scrutiny about that in the Edward Snowden days. A lot of people saying, oh, there's more people that have security clearances than in the country of Norway. Well, not not a lot of people live in Norway. I don't know why that matters. They did desk audits, reduce the size of the clearance population. The cleared population is a lot lower. So the data sets that we're talking about here in our conversation with Charlie are specifically related to DOD. We pulled these figures from the DOD CAF, so they're specifically the security clearance appeals cases that showed up for them. So again, we talk a lot about the clearance process here. Just because you get a clearance doesn't mean you can keep a clearance just because you apply for a clearance doesn't mean you will get a security clearance. But DOD in particular is very transparent and helpful along the way about what issues do cause denial and revocation, what you can do to mitigate those things. Here's the rest of our conversation that we had with Charles Phelan about those adjudicative guidelines, top causes of clearance denial, and his personal experience in that process. But this is interesting and relevant, again, both to the FSO, you know, recruiter and applicant side of things. What I always say is never weed yourself out of the process, as it were, because the whole person concept applies. Financial issues are always far and above the top reason for clearance denial and revocation. I've had Odie and I push back and say before it's personal conduct for them, which might be true of IC cases per se. Personal conduct can almost always be layered over almost any other one. And notice even in these, there's generally multiple adjudicative categories are applied for the denials and revocations. But finances just frequently come up. 
ODNI has clarified that COVID-related financial issues, so if you can tie your issue directly back to COVID, but we've had a few interesting instances of that at clearance jobs. So someone saying, hey, they didn't pay their student loans because of COVID, but the reality was they hadn't paid their student loans for like 10 years. So anything to speak to you on the adjudicative guidelines? I know it's more ODNI than you know the work you were doing. This actually several things come to mind, not the least of which is I've gotten three phone calls today telling me my student loan has been forgiven. And so <laughs> somebody's Congratulations. <laughs> So a couple of things. One is look at the sheer numbers here. The total of this is what, a couple of hundred, 300, 400, maybe 500 at the most of denials. This is this is coming from DCSA, these numbers, right? Specifically the Doha Industrial Security Clearance Denials and Revocations. Which is so the final, this, final piece, yeah. So when you yeah. think about the number of people that go through this process every year and that the number that get denied ultimately is this number, that speaks to a couple of things. One is the process is not completely uh, arbitrary, that there's a lot of thought that goes into it because most people, the vast majority of people get through it. And, you know, it matter a few hundred that don't get through it as opposed to the two million investigations that are done a year. You can do the math that that's a small amount. The other thing you mentioned um, a second ago about personal conduct being a little bit higher of an issue with the IC, that's likely because they have a way of getting at you that, that, North, that the rest of them don't, which is the polygraph. A lot of stuff comes out on the polygraph that does not come out anyplace else. It's things that, that have been shielded from almost anybody's view, except for what the applicant themselves have done. So that's probably where you're going to find it higher there. Financial considerations. Interestingly, we went through the same machinations back in 2008 or so when the economy was going badly and people were starting to have financial problems. And we took a very hard look at that. That was at CIA at the time and said, the fact you have a financial problem is not disqualifying. The real question is, how did you deal with it? And what, how did you take that responsibility and take care of that responsibility? And understanding that sometimes it's not going to be as easy as just writing a check and getting it over with. But how did you, you've got this responsibility and obligation. How did you deal with it, responsibly or irresponsibly? That is really usually the determination as to why financial consideration will knock you out or not. Is did, you, did you try to do the right thing? Or did you just really do something really bad? Sometimes hiring a, an organizer, a professional organizer can save your clearance. Because if you can have, if you can show the paperwork, if you can show, demonstrate, you know, things, but sometimes, you know, if you don't advocate for yourself or don't clarify, provide, you know, the mitigating issues behind it and present something, things can look very different. Like, are, did you really have a layoff that caused this? And can you demonstrate, you know, times when you did pay your bills or you made attempts versus... Just having kind of no clue how you got to where you are. That goes back to the, are you are you acting responsibly about it or you just shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know what's going on here. I'm going bankrupt. You also can't blame somebody else. We see that come up sometimes. Like even, you know, financial burdens become your burdens. Again, that, that finance and personal conduct are the two biggest ones. Criminal conduct comes into it. What I truly interesting there is psychological conditions. If there's this urban legend that if I have gone to see a shrink that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be denied a clearance. Clearly, that's not true. It's this small number of people that are being denied a clearance because of some psychological condition. Usually, it is in the extreme when it gets to that point. A key mitigator is, yes, I'm getting treatment. Okay, good. <laughs> Best thing you can do is actually see a mental health professional. I mean, that's what we see. The denials and revocations are generally based on untreated mental illness, right, not exactly. on someone who is taking proactive steps. It's someone who the self I treated myself or again, and it, it comes out another, you know, that's where I think sometimes you see, you know, potentially an alcohol consumption, a GK guideline come out. Somebody has an under, has another underlying issue and they're, they're not taking care of it. And then it manifests in other issues, but someone who is proactively seeking mental health treatment, even psychological conditions. And they did a lot to clarify that by tightening up question 21. So it should make it a lot safer space for people. But ODI released its 
kind of guidance on adjudicative guidelines, no changes to the adjudicative guideline, obviously drug use, illegal drug use, still an issue for security clearance holders, but they're trying to make it easier on the front end, the application piece saying, when do you need to abstain? Being pretty direct about saying for ODNI, they expect it to be when you sign the SF-86. Obviously, there's still a lot of freedom around suitability guidelines for how agencies will actually interpret that or what they'll do. But they're trying to make it pretty clear that for for what they're telling folks to do, don't do drugs past, you know, after you've signed the SF-86 and then CBD products, hardy buyer beware, and then investing in drug businesses. Any thoughts on those changes? So I, I think they're long overdue for a number of reasons, the practical reasons being the biggest ones, particularly as, as more and more states have said marijuana is okay, it's legal, you can do it. And, and different states have different thresholds of what it is you can do. You can buy it, can you sell it, can you smoke it, can you pass it to your friend, whatever. But it's legal as opposed to what it was when I was entering this business, which is strictly, completely illegal under all circumstances. And, uh, and so this is a recognition that there are people that will be qualified candidates to do work on behalf of the government, either as employers or contractors, employees or contractors, that will have legally used this stuff and have been legally using this stuff in some states for some period of time now. Is it really fair to deny them that? But it's also recognition that the law, the federal law says this is not legal. You can't do this. And so the commitment has always been and continues to be you, once you signed on board, or in this case, once you filled out SF-86, stop. You can't use this anymore, period, until the federal government laws change. The interesting challenge on this is going to be reaching backwards is how far back will they accept my usage if I'm in a state that still says it's not necessarily legal. And the the gist of, um, I don't have it in front of me right now, but the gist of the ODNI thing was be lenient. A few months is is probably okay, unless they are a habitual user of it to extremes. Uh, so that goes back to the sort of recency and frequency tests that a lot of agencies have used. The other challenge is going to be, well, different agencies have different ideas about what that threshold is. And I can envision in my mind, no insider information on this right now, that DEA is going to have a stricter threshold of pain than, say, CIA is going to have, or FBI might have something in between those sorts of things. And so that will have to be something people work out. But it's still, I think, is opening the door or a lot more reasonable approach to how to deal with pre-employment drug usage, particularly for people that are sort of coming into the workforce for the first time. And I guess this is the point that you and I, Linda, we talked offline uh, last week or earlier this week about uh, something out there in in, uh, Google land. If you Google it, it's uh, the marijuana bugaboo, which is an article written back in the uh, late 30s, early 40s by the editor of the um, medical journal for the U.S. Army, who is basically, I think it's late 30s, basically saying this I, this whole notion of eating people up for using using marijuana is crazy. There's nothing wrong with doing it. This should be cr- decriminalized and legalized. And the reason I bring that up, aside from this is not a new, this is like a 90-year-old document, an 80-year-old document, I don't know. The author of that document is my grandfather's brother, Dr. James Phelan, who was an Army doctor in World War One, as was my grandfather. And went on to, to uh, stay in the army and began became the editor of this journal. But it's an interesting short piece uh, saying, really, this is this is dumb, guys. Don't do this. <laughs> but nobody. And they still let him. They still let you work for the CIA, so you did fine. So it's okay to have some, you know. Well, even better, my dad worked for the CIA, so <laughs> they let him in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
what I appreciate about the memo coming out from ODI is there's always they're always going to get criticism that they're not being you know progressive enough or forward enough, and you know there's probably something to that. But at least kind of putting something out there is better than we've had kind of this speculative state over the past couple of years about it. And they're showing an inclination towards this. But I get until federal law changes, I mean they have a pretty good posture to say like I mean as an agency, I mean I, I found it ironic some of the pushback they got that why didn't they go further? And I'm like well. Congress probably needs to change something. Something needs to change. You're probably pushing back at the wrong place. You don't want your national security workforce to be leading the charge on on some of these issues to really put your policy beef somewhere else. We've got a couple questions about dual citizenship, so I just want to address them here because that policy change might have come out. I don't know where you were at when that came out, but we did have for a long time. You know, if you're a dual citizen, you had to turn your passport. All of that kind of those requirements changed. So we do get questions: if you're a dual citizen, is that automatic? security clearance disqualifier? No, because, you know, some countries automatically make you a citizen based on criteria. So it's not even an issue of sometimes an individual hasn't even applied for citizenship somewhere else. It's going to be very individual driven. But do you have any other thoughts on dual citizenship or foreign influence issues? So a couple of things. One is going back to your point about changing the rules for, for turning in your passports. The rule was before, if I was a uh, dual citizen, that if I got my, once I, if I wanted to get my uh, clearance, I had to go down to country A's embassy and turn in my which is the surest way of saying, hey, Charlie just joined the CIA. You may want to watch him a little bit here. So I think they finally realized this is an OPSEC problem to, to no end. It is still inappropriate to use that passport to travel if you've got the clearance, that foreign passport. But it is not saying you have to turn it in uh, in any way, shape, or form. And to your point, it is not an automatic disqualifier unless you are a dual citizen of a short list of countries. You can guess which ones they are. But uh, you know, certainly for the Five Eyes countries and, and NATO countries and a lot of the other countries we have good relationships with and neutral countries, having dual citizenship is not an automatic disqualifier. Your level of engagement with that other country, though, will, uh, to the amount of, that you are, are beholden to them in any way, shape, or form, is something that is, is useful to, to, uh, to understand. Adjudicators will have to look at that. Give an example of the sexual behavior. What might be a cause of clearance denial under the sexual behavior educated guideline? I have several examples from our reading of Doha cases, but Charlie, I'll let you start. Do you have any examples within your wheelhouse of what would cause? So I think we always get it. Well, couldn't you, wouldn't that be criminal conduct? But there, I have seen instances where something was based on the sexual behavior adjudicative guidelines specifically and not criminal? I think uh, so things that are, are well, certainly criminal stuff, certainly if it's, it's a rape, assault, this kind of a thing, uh, that's a problem. Good news is that uh, the things that 30 years ago would keep you out, like um, you know, your, your uh, sexual orientation or sexual affiliations, that doesn't count anymore. Nobody really cares. Sexual behavior stuff that and I'm probably not, not the best at adjudicating the, uh, the adjudicated guidelines, but stuff that would be if you, if because of your sexual behaviors, you have put yourself in a position where you can now be or are being exploited to do two bad things, whether it's illegal or criminal or, or just unethical, that would be a challenge. It's because you are embarrassed about, and this was one of the arguments about if you're gay or not, that's who cares about that anymore. It's, but, but if you're doing things that are that are going to put you in a position where you can be exploited, then that is something to consider and how can you deal with that? But uh, as you'll you see in the numbers that these kind of things are, it's a, a minimal number of people that run into something that is this, this difficult. By and yeah. large, it is things that, that are or borderline on criminal activities. I've seen it in the example of things that were not criminally prosecuted or, but clearly were inappropriate. So, you know, even inappropriate workplace conduct or things like that that fall under that, that maybe, again, it usually, like almost all of these things, multiple issues are at play. It usually falls directly alongside another issue. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. 
I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser from clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about background investigation myths, and boy, are there a lot of them. So, Lindy, what is the most outrageous or crazy myth that you've come across? Oh, gee, you're asking me the crazy. I had common already in my head, Sean, so now I have to come up with crazy. For me, the one that comes up, and it's still applicable, is I think people assume, some people assume, again, we always there's the two sides of the coin, but people assume that the background investigation is going to be kind of delving into their deepest, darkest internal secrets of everything they've posted on social media. The social media piece, I think we get a lot of misconceptions and questions and comments about. And so we have to kind of remind people that social media isn't currently a part of the background investigation process. I think what never ceases to amaze me is that nobody applying for a security clearance ever I mean, including myself when I first applied, has looked up what the adjudicative criteria are or the guidelines. So I think what never ceases to amaze me is how you can fill out 120 pages of an SF-86 and literally have really no clue what the background investigation is going to consist of or what the government actually cares about. (laughs) It, It is definitely something that folks who hold or are applying for a security clearance would do well to spend some time educating themselves on. I think it would, in a lot of cases, answer questions about, you know, not just process, but as you point out, um, what specifically the government is evaluating you against. I mean, that is really important, those criteria and, you know, what isn't incorporated in them. Some of the the things that I've heard a number of times over the years, and, and some of these kind of crack me up in terms of myths that, for example, the government is going through your bank records in the course of a typical background investigation. Now, there is a little kernel of truth in that, and we'll get to that in a minute. But by and large, no, they're not pouring through your visa credit card transactions or your checking account or anything like that. Some of the other ones are that they follow you. I've heard from folks that they've been out and about in public and you know seen suspicious people who look like G-men following them and taking note of their activities uh, during a background investigation. Also not a typical part of the background investigation process, although I should say that if you do legitimately encounter a situation like that, there may be more going on and you may be the subject of a criminal investigation, which is a whole other issue. And, uh, you know, we've seen and heard a lot of other stuff along those lines that, you know, the government's tapping your phones and they're monitoring your email and all of that is generally nonsense. The background investigation process is surprisingly low tech in 2022, people are really often surprised at how low tech that it is. You know, a lot of it is also kind of bureaucratic box checking. I mean, it's very formulaic. There are um, not a lot of scenarios that we've seen where investigators kind of get run of the gamut to just go out and chase leads. But, you know, there are exceptions to the rule. And as I mentioned earlier, if you legitimately think that something like that is happening and you have evidence to back it up, 
there may be more going on here and you may need to start thinking about talking to a criminal defense attorney. Yeah. I mean, I think the level of paranoia sometimes, again, there's two sides of it. People who are overly paranoid about the process and assume way more into it than, than is actually there. And then the people that simply have no clue and then are surprised, you know, at what questions are being asked. I think for me, there's also misconceptions about the clearance levels and what will be asked at each level of the security clearance. One of the biggest ones we see, and this is more a clearance process, I guess, myth or misconception though, around secret versus top secret clearances and what's included. And those background investigations are quite different for the secret and the top secret level. So I think that's a misconception that we see people have a lot. So sometimes people are surprised that they're able to obtain a confidential level clearance because they think that their drug use will be a bigger issue. They're not going to ask your college roommate how often you really actually smoked weed. The depths of the investigations are different and most people fail to realize that and that can cause issues. That is actually a really good point. You know, there are a lot of things that folks don't disclose when they are required to do so or things that maybe aren't required to be disclosed, but that come out in the course of a background investigation for a top secret where they are actually sending out investigators into the field and knocking on doors and talking to people face to face that don't come out or don't come to the government's attention for a lower level clearance. So a great example of that is precisely what you mentioned, the the marijuana use or the drug use. We see cases over and over and over where people have lied on their SF-86 for a secret level clearance. And they've said, no, you know, no drug use in the last seven years or no use while holding a clearance or, you know, both of those things. And then a few years go by, they're applying for, you know, top secret clearance. And all of a sudden they call us in a panic going, wait a minute, I'm actually going to be interviewed this time. And what do I do? And how do I deal with this? And it causes a lot of problems. And so, you know, I've written about that in the past on clearance jobs. I know that it's something that has come up a lot where people are looking for this silver bullet to kind of undo past lies. And unfortunately, there isn't one. So there are options. And, you know, if you're in that situation, it's best to talk to an attorney before you say or do anything. But the bottom line is, yeah, there are definitely differences in the scope of coverage for a background investigation, depending on the level. And so it is a common misconception that, you know, you might be able to get away with the same thing that you got away with the last time for a higher level clearance. And that's not often the case. Again, the two sides of the coins here, you know, don't disclose information or surprised about the depth. You wrote about this on your article on the site, people who think that as a part of the background investigation process, the government's going to be reading their emails, for instance, or like tapping their phone or looking in, you know, we've, we've had people fail to disclose that. Like they didn't want to disclose a relative who had been to jail because they thought the government was going to go interview them. The government doesn't care about your brother who went to jail. I mean, they care about you. I mean, maybe if he went to jail on your behalf or something, but a lot of the things that people are concerned about aren't things that actually come up in the investigation and that they just simply aren't a part of the scope of what the government is looking into. Yeah. And, and the irony with that is the not disclosing it actually becomes the issue. So you know, you use the example of the brother in jail. You're right. The government more than likely isn't going to care that your brother is in jail. That's not a commentary on you or your trustworthiness. But by not disclosing it and hiding it, it makes it a commentary on your trustworthiness. So that is something that we've seen over and over again. Now, the flip side of this whole thing, and 
speaking to your earlier point about uh, you know paranoia, I always sort of jokingly tell our clients a little bit of paranoia is a healthy thing. Too much is a problem, but a little bit sometimes is a good thing. And there are situations where, for example, somebody submits their SF-86 for a background investigation and unbeknownst to them, they are concurrently being investigated for some sort of counterintelligence issue or some sort of criminal investigation. And the information that they're providing to the government is helpful or being used in that case. Um, We have seen that. It's very rare, but it's not unprecedented. We've also seen situations where somebody has submitted an SF-86 and information that has been developed during the course of that background investigation has become a criminal investigation. And one of the ones that we've seen on a few occasions, actually, somebody has admitted during the course of a background investigation to storing classified information at their home and that they're in fact still in possession of it. And so we've had one or two cases over the years where somebody has been met on their doorstep after finishing a security clearance interview by federal agents who are there to serve a search warrant. So, you know, not to make anybody lose sleep here. It's it's very rare. But if there is something like that, where you have a legitimate reason maybe for some paranoia um, or some concern, then you really ought to think about whether it's worth applying for the security clearance in the first place and or at least getting some solid legal advice before you go down that road. Yeah, again, the right amount of paranoia is really key to this process. I'd like to maybe close on a nugget from you as a former background investigator. One of the other misconceptions people have is that their background investigator actually cares. I mean, I mean that in a positive way, Sean, but that they're putting a value judgment behind the information they gather. But really, the background investigation is just about gathering information. It is up to a separate person, the adjudicator, to decide that too. Because I know some people kind of try to, they want to sweet talk the background investigator during the interview. You think think they can razzle and dazzle them into providing a more favorable opinion, but that's not the person you really have to impress. They really are about gathering information. The determination process is in a separate bucket. Can you speak to that even as a background investigator? Maybe what's some of the common and even misconceptions you saw from that end of it? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, a couple things on that front. So like I said earlier, anything that you are worried about telling your background investigator or anything that you're just embarrassed about in general, it's not the first time they've heard it. So, you know, people just kind of have to get over that mental hurdle and focus on the the issue of transparency. When I was an investigator, I had people who clearly were, you know, trying to do things to sweet talk or, or, you know, smooth process over. And some of the ways that I saw people do that were in a couple of instances, listing celebrities as references. And the case in particular that stands out in my mind, somebody who was listed as a reference, they didn't really even know the person that well. They were listed, you know, as a means of, you know, trying to impress essentially is, is kind of what we gathered. That's really not going to help. You know, other situations where I went to interview somebody and was offered food or gifts or things like that. I mean, those are just bordering unethical conduct and your background investigator is not going to be able to accept those sorts of things, or at least they shouldn't. Like you said, I mean, the, the investigator is there to do a job. They're there to gather information. They're not there to pass judgment. And they're certainly not there to make the final call on whether or not you get the clearance. So it's really in the interest of all applicants to just focus on being truthful, being transparent, and where applicable, providing mitigating information 
that might help contextualize or put you know potential issues in perspective so that the ultimate arbiter, the adjudicator, has that information and can then assess whether or not you know the issues really are a concern. I think that's going to be a future chat. The three things you should never say to your background investigator. Stay tuned. <laughs> Sean Bigley will have that advice for you on a future episode. But no, I mean, I think that's the biggest takeaway. Know what you're filling out with the background investigation form. The government's not trying to hide anything from you. There's a lot of information out there. Consult an attorney or professional if you really have other questions too. You don't have to do it alone. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.